and welcome to the May 2008 uh, podcast of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. Hey, Matt. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How about you? Good. Doing well. Well, we're back on Skype, hopefully uh, figuring out some of the little uh, glitches we had the last time. Some of you noticed those and were helpful enough to point those out to us. We appreciate it. Uh, we want to give you something special this time. Uh, we just came this last month from the Twin Lakes Fellowship. Uh, it is a fraternity of uh, like-minded pastors from around the world, uh, all of them coming from a Reformed perspective, all of them uh, with a deep desire to see God's uh, truly glorified in churches, as well as a, a desire to see churches planted that are uh, exalting the glory of God. And so what we want to bring you this month is a talk from that conference. Uh, this was a talk given by Ligon Duncan. Uh, Ligon Duncan is, uh, among other things, the uh, the assembler of the Twin Lakes Fellowship. Uh, what's the term for that, Matt? C- convener. Convener. He's the convener. Now, we'll, we'll add a couple more C words here. He's, he's also the chairman of, uh, I think, pretty much any reformed ministry. <laughs> I think Ligon is the chairman of, he's the, uh, he's the chairman of CBMW, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He is the president of ACE, the um, uh, Alliance, you, of, Confessing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, uh, which you may be familiar, uh, does, a lo- does a lot of things. Uh, they do a lot of radio ministry. They, they're behind the Reformation 21 blog that many of you are familiar with. Uh, Ligon is also a pastor. He's a senior minister at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, he is an adjunct theology professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, I don't know where, when he sleeps. Do you know when he sleeps? I have no idea when he sleeps. We need to ask him that next time we see him, is when when do you sleep? Uh, he is also an author. He has... Um, authored, among other things, the, the Together for the Gospel book that came from the, from the conference of the same name. He just had a book come out this week from Christian Focus called Fear Not, which is a book on taken from a series of sermons he did on death and dying. And uh, so this, this is a man uh, that we need to be listening to. This is a man who's had a, a huge influence in bringing the whole ordinary means of grace back to the focus uh, back to a central focus in the Reformed Church, uh, particularly in the PCA. And uh, so we want to give you this uh, this talk. Matt, you want to say a little something about what we're going to be hearing here? Yeah, this is... Um, uh, Sean was the main motivation behind using this this month for Ordinary Means because I think that the impression that people have from the outside, when I talk to other pastors in the PCA about the idea of Ordinary Means, uh, it comes across to them as though it's not very thoughtful that it's just sort of stodgy, traditional, old-fashioned ministry. And in one sense, uh, it is the way that things used to be, um, a real reliance upon um, the word sacraments and prayer as the prime way. Um, those of you who use the Westminster Standards, you could look at uh, Westminster Larger Catechism 155 that we see, as you've heard on this podcast, preaching as the ordinary way that God calls sinners to himself and sanctifies um, his people. And some people have looked at that and said, well, that's pretty stodgy. I mean, that's not really oriented towards the 21st century. One of the things I appreciated uh, about this particular presentation of uh, the Twin Twin Lakes Fellowship's uh, ministry, philosophy of ministry even, was that Lake makes a a very important point in here. Uh, He uses a fancy word, uh, contextualization. And basically, he makes the point that I thought was very helpful, that no ministry... Uh, is not contextualized. The question is whether the contextualization is done intelligently. Is somebody thought through, what does ministry look like at this time, in this place, in this community, to these people, with these people in my church? Well put. Well put. Well, without further ado, then, let's uh, get right to uh, Ligon Duncan. Uh, What you're going to be hearing here is his first talk from the Twin Lakes Fellowship, uh, held just this last April 2008. And uh, this is really the fruit of him having thought about 
these kinds of issues, ordinary means of grace issues, uh, for really all of his ministry, although the, he's been preaching this message or a message similar to it at the beginning of every Twin Lakes Fellowship for the past eight years. And so uh, I really think you'll be blessed by hearing the fruit of his thought and uh, really his heart uh, for the church. Uh, so here is Ligon Duncan. I want to I do four things with you in the time that we have this afternoon before our break and before we hear our first exhortation of the Twin Lakes Fellowship. I want to talk with you about what the Twin Lakes Fellowship is. Carl has already begun to sketch that out for us. He's highlighted some things that I could only say amen to, and I want to elaborate on that just a little bit and tell you about what we are. I also want to be very clear about what we mean by an ordinary means of grace approach to the life and ministry of the church and why it's important. I think there are still, uh, though this is enshrined in our confessional documents, it's right there in the catechisms, it's on the face of uh, the life and ministry of the church, it's in the pastoral theologies that have been written in the Reformed tradition over the last five centuries. This is not something new and unheard of. This is not some new unproved, uh, new improved cereal box that we're opening to spring upon unsuspecting evangelical pastors. It's just v- plain vanilla Reformed ministry. Nevertheless, there are all manner of misunderstandings about what is entailed in that terminology, and I want to give some description of what exactly it is that we're talking about and why it's important. Third, I want to talk about the kind of ministry commitments that flow out of a commitment to the ordinary means of grace ministry. And that's where our Twin Lakes talking points. We've numbered them different ways over the last uh, 10 or 11 years. The folks that are involved in the core group of uh, giving leadership to the Twin Lakes Fellowship have actually been meeting for 10 or 11 years, though we've only been meeting as a conference for eight years. And uh, ever since we met, these, however we numbered them, 10, 12, 13, 15 points of ministry uh, have been a common commitment on all our parts, and I want to talk about them. I'll probably number them in 12 points, but the second point will have three sub-points. So you're still going to get your, you're still going to get your 15 points. They're just slightly reorganized. And then I want to talk a little bit about what we want to help produce through the work of the Twin Lakes Fellowship. Before I get to this, I, I do want to draw your attention to one thing that Carl's already brought to your attention. If you look on your, the back of your Twin Lakes Fellowship folder, you will notice that we have the schedule printed there. And we've already had some modification to that schedule that I want to draw your attention to. And I'm not sure whether everybody, has has everybody been given the green copies of the change schedule? No, so I need to tell you about it. It would probably be good for you to take your pen out now and let me just tell you about a couple of changes. In order to accommodate you better and the Friday and the Thursday morning schedule better, we're going to start breakfast at 8, not at 8.30. So breakfast will run from 8 until 8.40 on Thursday morning, unlike uh, tomorrow morning, where we'll start out at 8.30. Then on uh, the devotional reading will happen from 8.40 to 8.45. And then Terry Johnson's seminar on leading in public prayer will begin at 8.45, not at 9.00. And that will uh, give Terry uh, adequate time to cover some outstanding material on leading in public prayer and then for us to transition into the telephone interviews with Tim Keller and with David Wells. Just to whet your appetite this afternoon on the telephone interview, we will be speaking to Thabiti Anyabwile, who preached to us last year, an outstanding message. His final four points of application are still ringing in my ears from last year, but Thabiti has had a has a had a busy year. Two of his books are in print now. The Faithful Preacher uh, was published in 2007 by Crossway, 
which covers the lives of three African-American ministers that stretch over the course of American history and really provide models of what we would call ordinary means of grace ministry at the very heart of what they were trying to do. And it's called The Faithful Preacher. It's published by Crossway. And then his book on the decline of African-American theology, which has been uh, published by InterVarsity Press U.S., uh, has come out, and it is superb, and uh, as, as only Thabiti can do, uh, a rigorous analysis of and now an indictment of the present state of the African-American church. But as I was reading that uh, book again, skimming across it this morning, and then looking at his conclusion, what I was struck by was how directly applicable everything that Thabiti says about the African-American church is to my church. I mean, the, the final four things that he says that have to be done if the African-American church is going to see the dimmed goal restored to its former glory are precisely the things that need to happen in my church if we're going to be faithful to the living God. And I'm, I'm not going to spoil my surprise because I've, I've told Thavidi I want to ask him about those four things that he says in the conclusion. I think it will be very edifying to you. And then, of course, many of you know that uh, number seven on the New York Times bestsellers list right now is Tim Keller's book, the Reason for God, uh, which is an apologetic uh, for Christianity. And uh, we're going to interview Tim on Thursday morning about that. And then David Wells' book, The Courage to be Protestant, is due out any time now. Uh, I'm hoping that by the middle of this month, that together for the gospel, Erdman's will have copies of it to give uh, to all the participants there. Uh, but the courage to be Protestant will be out. Its subtitle is Marketers, Emergence, and Truth Lovers in a Modern World, or something like that. Marketers, Emergence, and Truth Lovers, which are the three categories that he has for evangelicalism now as uh, part of his taxonomy of our cultural moment. And uh, it is uh, scintillating stuff. And uh, we'll be talking with David about that. So that's just to let you know. We'll also be having a roundtable, and I'll tell you about our participants uh, there. Uh, maybe sometime tonight that roundtable will happen tomorrow afternoon. But what I want to do now is launch into this introduction of the Twin Lakes Fellowship and tell you just a little bit about what the Twin Lakes Fellowship is. First of all, our goal for the Twin Lakes Fellowship is for it to be a fraternal and a fellowship, especially for ministers and elders engaged in the work of the local church, because we believe that the local church is the front line of God's work in the kingdom in this world. And we believe that the church is God's plan A and that there is no plan B. And while uh, everyone else out there uh, that's involved in paraministries of various sorts wants to convince you that whatever ministry that they're working on and whatever agenda that their ministry is devoted to is more important than your work in the local church, we want to say very loudly, not just whisper in your ear, but very loudly in your ear, thank you for being committed to God's work in the local church. That's what God has called you to. That's what's going to make the difference in the world today. Not all of the high-profile uh, conference speaking tour, uh, merchandise marketing uh, paraministries out there, but the local church will make the difference in the world. And we want to, we want to encourage you in that. Yeah, to that end, this is really... We hope less of a conference and more of a fraternal. And I know that if we look at those words in, in English, they're going to end up meaning the same thing. I, I understand that. But you also know what I mean by conference. A lot of times when we think of conferences, we think primarily of the people up here speaking out to you out there, the audience. But at the Twin Lakes Fellowship, just as exciting, and I, I, I hope that the that the edification that you receive from those who speak to you 
uh, in the next 72 hours or so is profound. Uh, but the conversations that you can have amongst yourself and the edification that can be gained from you cultivating gospel friendships uh, with men maybe that you don't get to see very often or maybe men that you've never, ever met before, uh, we think could be very, very profound. We agree uh, with Jonathan Edwards who said that when God is preparing to do something great, he brings together a fraternity of brethren in the ministry. He knits them together in a bond when he is preparing to do something great in his church. And we want to be a part of facilitating that knitting together. And so this is a fraternal more than it is a conference. I want to emphasize that this is not a caucus. We're not, we're not here to tell you how to vote uh, in your presbytery. Uh, or at General Assembly. Uh, we're not telling you who to elect for moderator. Uh, we're, uh, we, we may well go out of here and vote different ways in our presbytery. That's all fine. We, that's not what we're about here. This is about a fellowship. We want to encourage you in the gospel, in the ordinary means of grace. We want to recharge your batteries. As John Payne prayed in that opening prayer, we are well aware that some of you come here exhausted and discouraged. I understand that. I'm right there with you. And we know that some of you come with tremendous burdens on your hearts. Sometimes it's not even about you. Sometimes it's burdens that you're carrying for your family or for your church or for friends. Some of you in the last few weeks may have seen friends who have been a part of your life for many years fall into immorality, which is going to end their gospel ministry. That's happened to me in the last few weeks. I've seen a dear, dear friend fall into immorality, and it's going to mean the end of ministry. And that's a very discouraging thing in gospel ministry. You know, you're soldiering on and some one of those guys who's right next to your shoulder, he falls. And he falls at his own hand. He doesn't fall at the fire of the enemy. And it's a, it's a very, very discouraging thing. So I don't know what the circumstances are in your life, but I know that many of you will have come here with significant discouragement. And the whole design of what we're doing together as a fraternal is to recharge your batteries, to strengthen your hands that have grown weak and weary in well-doing, and to prepare you to go back into the battle again, into the fray, refreshed and energized and encouraged, and knowing that you're not alone, and knowing that you're not being sent out to work on your own, but there is a band of brothers that's praying for you. And perhaps within that band of brothers, there's a smaller number of connections that you've made in friendships and relationships of men who are really going to keep up with you and check on you and send you an email and pray for you regularly and see how they can encourage you all along. At the same time, we hope that networks will form that will serve the purpose of supporting church planning and missions work here and around the world. That has happened ever since we've been meeting in the Twin Lakes Fellowship. During the reports that Carl will lead over the next three days, you'll be able to hear already some of the fruit that has been born from that. We have Twin Lakes folks ministering on every continent in the world, every inhabited continent in the world. We have Twin Lakes folks all over the United States. This gathering is not a regional gathering. It's a gathering that stretches all across North America. And many of you are from one coast or another in the northern part of the, of the nation and uh, from the southwest and from the southeast. There are people from every part of the nation. And as Carl has indicated, from many, many denominational backgrounds. We're delighted to have brethren from the Associate Reformed Presbytery of Churches, and we're thankful for them. And you'll be introduced to one another and to others during the week. So we want to be a ministerial fraternal for the promotion of church health and growth by the ordinary means of grace. So we want to be a ministerial fraternal that encourages you, but we also want to be a ministerial fraternal that works together both as individuals cooperating with one another and as churches that we represent cooperating with one another 
to be about the work of the promotion of church health and growth through the ordinary means of grace. And by God's grace, we've seen that happening over the last seven or eight years. People cooperating, sending out church planters, overseeing church planting work. We've wanted to draw pastors' attention to the importance of healthy local churches not only being planted but being revitalized. In fact, during our Q&A tomorrow, we'll be able to spend some time thinking about leadership and revitalization. Uh, So we don't just want this to serve you. We want it to serve the whole church by serving you and by introducing you to one another so that you you come into contact. Perhaps you'll be a church planter and you'll come into contact with a pastor or an elder whose church is looking for a solid church planter to invest in. We want that to happen during this week. Or perhaps, perhaps you're looking for a solid church planter to invest in. You've come here and you've got the resources and we want you to bump into that church planter. It can can go either way. We want those sorts of things to happen during this week. We want it to be a ministerial fraternal that encourages you, but we also want to do what we can positively to promote church health and growth by the ordinary means of grace. Now, what do we mean by the ordinary means of grace and why is it important? Well, by the ordinary means of grace, we simply mean a radical commitment to following the direction of God's word as to both the message and the means of gathering and perfecting the saints. By the ordinary means of grace, we mean a radical commitment to following the direction of God's word as to both the message and the means of gathering and perfecting the saints. We live in a time of tremendous confusion in uh, evangelicalism as to what the church is and does. And a whole new dictionary of vocabulary has actually grown up in the last 40 years to describe the church. And we're very interested in models and we're we're very interested in techniques and we're very interested in contextualization and we're very interested in applying this new vocabulary of, uh, of of the dictionary of modern church life and ministry to the life and ministry of our Churches as a way of revitalizing and making more effective and potentially successful the ministry that we're doing in the local church. And one of the significant uh, things that we've watched happen over the last hundred years and more particularly over the last 40 years is people either say that if the church is going to be effective in reaching our time and culture and world, then either the message is going to have to change or the methods are going to have to change whereby we are going about reaching our time and culture and world. And of course, you'll recognize that the call to change the message is fundamentally the message of theological liberalism. It stretches back at least as far as Friedrich Schleiermacher, who uh, looked around and, and before uh, uh, Schleiermacher, there were, of course, other people that were doing this as well. But uh, Schleiermacher looking out on his constituency in Germany and realizing that the message of uh, uh, the gospel was falling on deaf ears uh, on the people around him. And so there was a desire to craft a message that would be more attractive to an intelligent, moral German gentleman. And uh, thus, uh, we got uh, lectures on Christianity to its culture despisers. And uh, we got an attempt to recraft the message of Christianity so that that message would be not simply more palatable, but more compelling to the culture around it. And that's the fundamental premise of liberalism, that if we're going to reach our culture, we've got to change our message. Because our message isn't going to work. And again, over against that, ordinary means of grace ministry says God hasn't given us the prerogative to change the message. He's given us the message. Just as 
all of God's people experience of God begins with God communicating himself to them, our only job as gospel ministers is to communicate that message which God has communicated to his people to our own time and culture and world. We have no right to change that message. We are simply conveying the message. I love the illustration that has been used for probably 50 years in America that Mark Dever picks up on very often in his seminars on biblical preaching and biblical theology through the Nine Marks ministry. He says, we're the postman. And it's not the postman's job to go into your mail and change the messages that you're receiving. It's the postman's job to deliver the mail. God's the one who's written the message. We're just the postman. We deliver the message that God has already given. And so liberalism makes a tremendous, tremendous mistake by that approach. But evangelicalism has been more often susceptible to another kind of mistake than that. And that is the mistake that, oh, no, the message is fine. What we need is new methods. New methods will help us in reaching our time, our culture, our world. And, of course, during the heyday of the church growth movement, and we're moving past that now into a new season of life in American evangelicalism, Uh, In the heyday of church growth, the paradigm for changing those methods was the marketing paradigm. You approach your audience as religious consumers and you give them what they want in the sense of meet their felt needs and you remove obstacles Things that would be strange to them if they were to come into the church. You want the church to be as unreligious and as unspiritual as you can possibly make it. Remove all the barriers of things that are different to their experience and speak to them at their point of felt need so that you can then come with the gospel message added on to whatever your point of contact has been with them. And so the idea behind that whole approach is that if we're going to be effective, we need new methods. The message is fine, but people aren't interested in that message. We need to get them interested in something else and we need to remove barriers to their encountering that message so that they can then encounter the message. But as Jim Boyce reminded us so many years ago, the problem with that is what you win them by, you win them to. What you win them by, you win them to. And it is not surprising that even some of the key proponents of that whole approach to ministry have admitted recently and then taken it back that they see a problem with the approach because they can't get people to make the the discipleship jump. They can get them into the seeker context but they can't get them into the discipleship track. To which I say, duh. (laughs) Because it is fundamentally a bait and switch approach to ministry. Attract them for A, and then get them there and say, now by the way, the real reason we had you here was B. Don't be surprised when they say, well, I'd just like to stay in A, thank you. Because what you win them by, you win them to. And so that whole approach to ministry has been called into question. Now, in our own time, we've moved on. And in the quest to contextualize ministry, there has been a reaction to this kind of a marketing approach to growing the church. And we see uh, young folks all around us that are virulently opposed to that kind of a marketing strategy. And yet, at the same time, they too are profoundly committed to transforming what the church looks like in order to reach their contemporary uh, culture and time and the world. And the, the one problem that underlies all this is that contextualization often in the name of reaching the unchurched succeeds 
in unchurching the churched. In the name of reaching the unchurched, contextualization often unchurches the churched. And so what we want to say is, methodologically speaking, these attempts that we are seeing happen in our time, well-meaning attempts, attempts that are often uh, born of a deep and profound concern for the lost, don't want to in any way call into question all the motivations of many of your and my friends who are committed to these patterns of ministry. Heaven knows my ministry has enough flaws. You sit down for 15 minutes, you're going to be able to name 12 flaws about my ministry. So this is not about sitting around and throwing rocks at other people or questioning their particular motivations. But this is a fairly profound flaw. If in the course of seeking to church the unchurched, you successfully unchurch the church and you destroy the mechanisms for discipleship, which God himself has built into the church, you've got a serious problem on your hands. And we're beginning to see the results of that serious methodological problem all throughout the evangelical church today. Two ways that you see it very obviously, even in the statistics that are being pro uh, provided by this movement are, one, if you look at general evangelical uh, Christianity, that is, you include everybody that's described as an evangelical by their own descriptors, and you'll see virtually no ethical difference between that part of the community and the unbelieving part of the community, say, in the area of marriage and divorce. Another area is simply in the area of Bible knowledge. You know, people are sitting around and scratching their heads right now, and they're saying, it is absolutely amazing. There is an epidemic of biblical ignorance in our culture. Well, I want to say to that, again, duh, because for 50 years we've said if you want to reach the unchurched, you can't give them all this heavy Bible exposition. They're not interested in that. You've got to give them something else. You've got to give them some how-tos. You've got to give them some things that are going to touch them at the point of their felt need. And so consequently, after 50 years of this experience, nobody knows their Bibles. There's nothing surprising at all because the very mode of seeking to church the unchurched has successfully unchurched the church. So your mode of discipleship has to be coordinate to your mode of outreach and your mode of outreach has to be coordinate to your mode of discipleship. Evangelism and discipleship, other word, in other words, go together. Now that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus says it in the Great Commission. Isn't it interesting? In the Great Commission, he says, Go, therefore, and make converts. No. Go, therefore, and get decisions. No. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And so the very process of outreach has in view the production of, of, of disciples of the Messiah. And so our evangelism has to be coordinated to our discipleship. And we're very serious about this when we say that the ordinary means of grace approach to ministry, precisely because it has a high view of the Bible, of preaching, of the church, of the sacraments, and of prayer, is best equipped to be aggressively evangelistic in our world. Ordinary means of grace based ministry believes that the key things that the church can do in order to help people know God and grow in their knowledge of God are emphasize the public reading and preaching of the word, emphasize the confirming and sanctifying and assuring efficacy of the sacraments publicly administered, emphasize a life of prayer, especially corporately in the church, these things are central and vital, but sadly often underemphasized and underappreciated and undermined by the very modes of ministry that are being suggested as the solution to our problems uh, by the gurus of church growth today. 
Ordinary Means of Grace Ministry believes that God means what he says in the Bible about the central importance of these public outward instruments for spiritual life and growth. God explicitly instructs ministers and churches to do at least the following five things. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. That's Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.13. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience instruction. Again, that's Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, Matthew 28.19. Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Drink from this cup. It is the new covenant of my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Matthew 26 and 1 Corinthians 11. And I urge that entreaties and prayers... Petitions and thanksgivings be made, and therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 8. These are the main ways people grow. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the instruments, the tools of God's grace bring us to faith and grow us in the word. uh, and, And to grow us in grace are the word prayer, and sacraments. Nothing else we do in the church's program of ministry should detract from these central elements, these central instruments of grace, and indeed everything else we do should promote and coalesce with them. Now this means, among other things, that ministry is not rocket science. The message you're going to hear this afternoon from David Meredith is going to be called Evangelism is Not Rocket Science. And that's an important message for us to hear today, because to hear some speak, it is. Gospel faithfulness does not require that you be a sociologist, because ministry is not determined in the first place by reading the culture, but by reading the Word of God. The ordinary means minister wants to connect with the culture, but when it comes to determining method and priorities, he moves from text to ministry not from culture to ministry. He doesn't want to change his message or his methods based on the polling of the most recent focus group, even though he wants to be fully cognizant of the obstacles and opportunities that his biblical message will face in a particular cultural context. Now, by the way, that's not to say that I believe that there is such a thing as an uncontextualized ministry or that ordinary means of grace means that you don't contextualize. Let me be very clear. There is no such thing as an uncontextualized ministry. There is no such thing. You would have to leave the world to be uncontextualized somewhere in the world. All of us have a context, and all of our ministries are contextualized. Those of you who are preaching to English-speaking congregations are conducting your sermons in English. That is a part of contextualization. Most of you in your worship services sit in pews or chairs. That was never done in the history of Christianity until about the 12th century. that, That is a contextualized habit or practice that you have inherited. Now, we could have people going around today in the name of contextualization. Let's say that we hadn't started sitting in pews or chairs in the 12th century. We could have people going around today saying that the key to ministry in our culture is pews. Or the key to ministry in our culture is chairs. We could just stop standing up and sit down. It would just revolutionize gospel ministry. Or we could have people saying, no, the key to ministry is that we keep standing up. We're not going to sit in those chairs and pews. Ordinary means of grace ministry doesn't want to get caught on either side of the either the embrace of or the reaction against certain cultural things that are indifferent. Because it doesn't see the key to ministry success as residing there. It sees the key to ministry success, such as it is, as faithfulness. Faithfulness is relevance. And so the Lord calls us 
yes, to be fully cognizant of the obstacles and opportunities of the biblical message and methods in the face of a particular cultural context. And I fully understand that there's no such thing as an unsituated ministry or an uncontextualized ministry. And that means that we're not going to universalize our particular cultural moment or confuse it with universal biblical norms. And at the same time, we're going to appreciate that some churches have unhelpfully baptized cultural norms and methods from the present and the past without realizing the baneful influence that that has had on both the methods and the message of the church. If any of you ever read Terry Johnson's uh, material in his church newsletter for Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, recently he has been going through a, sort of a popular history of Christian worship. And one of the fascinating studies that he has done is to look at how some of the church fathers who we esteem the most with regard to the development of the doctrine of the Trinity and of the persons of Christ and of the hypostatic union and things of this nature were also involved in a dramatic, dramatic change in the life of the church. They looked out in their culture and they said, you know, Christian worship is kind of plain and bare and simple when you look around at Greco-Roman culture. And they, the people in Greco-Roman culture like elaborate ritual and they like mystic symbolism. And if we're going to reach this culture, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to give them some elaborate ritual and some mystic symbolism. And ladies and gentlemen, they did precisely that. And I give you medieval Roman Catholicism. And their, their arguments went like this. Well, you know, this is a very visual culture. And they can't just hear the truth. They need to see it acted out in front of them. And so we need to provide elaborate rituals so that the people can see the truth uh, acted out in front of them. And it brought about a profound change in the nature of Christianity. I really commend it. Unless you want to have to plow through all the writings of Dom Gregory Dix, it's a lot quicker to just read Terry's uh, synopsis of it in the newsletter. Is that online, Terry, somewhere? Can you get it online? You don't ever go online. Terry, Terry wrote it by candlelight with a quill pen. And, uh, <laughs> I think you can if you go to the Independent Press website. All of that to say is, all of that to say is, efforts at contextualization have often unhelpfully baptized cultural norms without realizing the baneful cultural influence. But also, uh, many churches in the quest to contextualize the gospel and the ministry have in fact ended up compromising them. And so by the commitment to the ordinary means of grace, we mean going back and asking ourselves, what are our marching orders? And remembering that those marching orders are very simple. Preach the word, love the people, Pray down heaven, disciple your elders, promote family religion, live a godly life. And what's the church's marching orders? Delight in the Lord's day, gather with the saints to drink in the pure milk of the word, Sunday morning and evening as families pray together as a congregation every week, worship and catechize at home in families, love one another, show mercy to one another, uh, show love to all men. What will a church look like that's committed to this kind of ministry? Well, it'll be characterized by a love for preaching, a passion for worship, a delight in truth, an embrace of the gospel, an, a knowledge of the Spirit's work of conversion, a life of godliness, robust family religion, biblical evangelism and discipleship and church membership and mutual accountability and leadership and a desire to be a blessing to the nations. And all along with this, there will be an unapologetic, humble, joyful celebration of the transcendent sovereignty of the one triune God in salvation and in all things. So this is what we mean by the ordinary means of grace approach to ministry and why it's so important. I think ministers, because we have been called to serve in the one profession for which we will not get a report card until the judgment day. 
we are constantly trying to figure out ways to measure our ministry before then. And very often the ways that we come up to measure our ministry actually end up distracting us from what ought to be the focus of our ministry. Because we so long to have a measure now of the effectiveness of what we're doing. That's why I think what Jim Boyce said was so wise before he died. He said, as I look out at evangelicalism, I see people making this mistake. They overestimate what they can accomplish in five years, and they underestimate what they can accomplish in 25 years. And by that, he meant that they confused the measurement of short-term success with the real substance of long-term ministry, and as a consequence, they compromised the potential effectiveness of a long-term ministry in order to have measurement of short-term success that would give them encouragement. And I think there's a real wisdom in that. So what kind of ministry commitments flow out of an ordinary means of grace approach to ministry? Well, the first thing is a love for expository Bible preaching. Uh, it doesn't, it's, I'm not announcing anything big to you to say that there continue to be, as there have been for at least 50 years, people telling you that the day of expository Bible ministry is over. Uh, and yet, every indication of where the church is strongest today tells us that where the church is strongest, faithful exposition of Scripture is strongest. When you look out amongst what's being called the Young Reformed Awakening, uh, you will see uh, young people from all manner of backgrounds who are absolutely on fire about biblical exposition. And there is absolutely nothing in their context that is fueling that. It is their reaction to their context that is fueling that. So if you decide that you are going to craft a mode of preaching that adapts itself to the context of your young people, then you are going to cut yourself off from ministering to the young Reformed Awakening because they're looking for ministry that is not adapted to their context. So isn't that the irony? The attempt to contextualize actually cuts you off from what the Holy Spirit is so obviously doing in our time and culture. And so ordinary means of grace ministry is going to uh, put a premium on expository Bible preaching. That's how we equip our people for the life and love of God. That's how we proclaim to them the gospel. That's how we keep them fixing their eyes on Jesus. That's how we help them resist the siren song of culture. That's how we help them keep from caving in and copying the world. The, the Bible's answer to how we do this is by the preaching of the word of God to them so that their hearts and mind are captured by the word of God rather than captive to the world and the flesh and the devil. I love the way that J.I. Packer describes preaching in uh, his book, um, a book of essays that was just uh, put together a couple of years ago called Truth and Power. And really his chapter on preaching is well worth you meditating upon. Because what Packer points out there is that God has always encountered his people and, in fact, created his people by his word. And therefore, the minister's job, he says, is to facilitate a word-based encounter between God and his people. So that God's truth is spoken into their hearts and they meet the living God, but they only meet him by the word. And this, of course, goes all the way back to John 4. Well, it goes all the way back to Genesis 1, but it certainly goes back to John 4. Because surely one of the things that Jesus means when he says to that woman at the well, and have you ever thought about the fact that the most important recorded conversation about worship, that the second person of the Trinity incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ, ever had was with a serial adulteress. 
If, if that's not a sign of God's grace, I don't know what is. Can't you imagine the angels in heaven? Lord, don't you, don't you think it'd be better for Jesus to have that conversation with, say, Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration? But the conversation is with this serial adulteress. It's a sign of God's grace. Well, when he, when he says that those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth, at least, at least he's pointing us to this fact. If you are going to worship a spirit, just how exactly is it that you go about worshiping the spirit? A, a spirit. How do you worship a spirit? Well, the only way that you can worship a spirit is in a way that corresponds to the nature of what that spirit is. And the only way that you can worship that spirit is in the way that that spirit allows you to worship him. Because you can't have an encounter with a spirit unless a spirit wants you to have an encounter with him. And in that passage, Jesus makes it absolutely clear that it's not only going to be his person in which we have an encounter with the living God, because God is spirit, but that it is through the truth of God's word that we're going to have an encounter with the living God. And so the reason that preaching is at the center of worship and always will be as long as we're following the Bible, as long as we're Christians is because the only way that you can have an encounter, the only way that you can commune with God who is spirit, is in the way that he has allowed you to commune with him, and that is mediated by his son and through the word. It's a word-based, Christ-mediated encounter. And that's what you're facilitating in the preaching of God's word. Secondly, those who embrace the ordinary means of grace are going to have a passion for biblical congregational worship. You know, in our own time, there are serious voices questioning whether there is such a thing as public worship in the New Testament and for New Covenant Christians. Some really, really wonderful, smart people have suggested that there is no such thing as corporate worship in the New Testament. Uh, our friends from... Uh, the, the, the Sydney Diocese uh, in uh, Australia uh, have, have fostered this very idea that there's no such thing as corporate worship. In the New Covenant, they would say there's worship in all of life, but there's no such thing as gathered worship. That's, that's not what we're here to do. Well, again, the New Testament is so crystal clear about this. I don't know how you can get out of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 and think that there's no such thing as corporate worship in the New Testament. What is the Apostle Paul doing there but laying down what the rules for corporate worship are going to be? Even in those charismatic churches in Corinth uh, where the Holy Spirit himself is doing extraordinary things, Paul is laying out the rules for how they are to act together as they are gathered for public worship. Well, those who are committed to the ordinary means of grace will have a passion for biblical congregational worship. And that's going to mean, among other things, that they're going to want to sing the Bible and biblical truths. And they're going to want to pray the Bible back to God. And they're going to hear the word of God read to them and proclaimed to them faithfully. It's going to mean that they're going to thrive on the Lord's Day. And especially that they're going to long for the day to be begun and ended in the praise of God so that it doesn't become the Lord's morning or the Lord's hour, but it remains the Lord's day. And so they'll thrive on Lord's Day morning and evening worship. And, of course, as you know, and many of you may well have this situation in your own local congregations, evening worship is becoming a rarity. Uh, I get lots of people that come to First Presbyterian Church on Sunday nights from evangelical churches all over the city because they long to be with the people of God under the word of God and they can't get it in their own home church. This will mean enjoying a theology of Lord's Day experience. You know, I think it's very likely that in our lifetime we'll lose the Lord's Day. That is, we'll lose the ability to have the privilege of making the choice on our own to enjoy the Lord's Day as the Lord's Day. Uh, that'll be lost to us because we ourselves have denigrated it so much. And when we lose it, we will have lost a great blessing indeed. 
the whole theology of Lord's Day experience needs to be taught again to a whole generation that's viewed the Lord's Day as a burden and not as a joy. That's, that's viewed it as something that is restrictive and narrow instead of freeing and a delight. We need to learn to think about the Lord's Day the way the slaves in Egypt, uh, the Hebrew slaves in Egypt thought about the Lord's Day. When they get to Mount Sinai and God says to them that they're to remember the Sabbath day and they're to keep it holy and they're not to work on it, no one in their household, he's declaring to them that he is giving them these former slaves who used to work 24-7, 365 days a year, He's saying, I just want you to understand, I am mandating seven and a half weeks of vacation every year. Now you realize how they would have responded. That's how we ought to respond when we hear that there's a Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is the day of the week that I work the hardest and yet is my favorite day of the week. And your enthusiasm for the Lord's Day, such as it is, will either dampen or increase your people's joy in the Lord's Day. Those who are committed to the ordinary means of grace in ministry will be committed to biblical doctrine. Uh, We, again, live in a day and time where doctrine is at a discount. Uh, People uh, think that uh, the day of propositional truth is past and uh, that doctrine doesn't matter anymore. But have you ever noticed how, uh, how many creative ways that the importance of doctrine is pressed home in Paul's epistles. One hit me just this last Lord's Day. We're working through Philippians. And if you remember, in Philippians 3.1, Paul is just about ready to conclude that letter. And apparently, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he thought better of it, and he ends up giving a long doctrinal discourse after he has said, finally... In Philippians 3.1. You ever done that before? And finally, and then there are seven more points and 25 more minutes of exposition. Well, that's exactly what Paul does. Philippians 3.1. And finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And then he gives you two more chapters of the book. Half of the book remains after he said, and finally. Well, it, as I looked at that doctrinal discourse, which is especially aimed at those who are going to encourage the Philippians to do what? Put their confidence in the flesh, not in Christ. It struck me that that exhortation, rejoice in the Lord, is not disconnected from the doctrinal exhortation to put no confidence in the flesh. The Apostle Paul knew that if they put their confidence in the flesh, they would not be able to rejoice in the Lord. You can't rejoice in the Lord and put confidence in the flesh. The two are mutually exclusive. And so the doctrinal declaration is necessary for their joy. In other words, doctrine is necessary for joy. So we're going to have to explain to our people how doctrine functions in the Christian life again, because they don't know. Again, there's going to be a a passionate devotion to godliness, a passionate devotional approach to God and truth if we take the ordinary means of grace seriously. There's going to be a promotion of family religion. There's going to be a biblical understanding of the gospel, and that's going to have an impact on our evangelism. This is an important thing for us today because we keep hearing people talking about doing the gospel as opposed to preaching the gospel. At the Gospel Coalition meeting in Chicago last May, uh, Tim Keller said something that really caught my attention. And uh, it was this. He said, if you ever hear somebody say, preach the gospel every day, use words if necessary. You ever heard someone say that? I, I hear it all the time. A lot of our young guys are very attracted to that. Preach the gospel every day. Use words if necessary. It's actually a very old formulation. I won't give you the history of it. But Tim said, if you, if you hear somebody says, say that, here's what it means. It probably means that they don't understand the gospel. It, it pinned me to my seat. And, of course, he's exactly right. Because you can't do the gospel You can only tell the gospel because the gospel is done for you. It's not done by you. 
So you can't do the gospel. Anybody talks about doing the gospel is confusing the results of the gospel with the gospel. And that is a very, very serious theological problem. You can't do the gospel because the gospel is done for you. You can only tell the gospel. And Tim went on to give a beautiful illustration of this by uh, telling about a sermon that he had heard Martin Lloyd-Jones preach in that series of evangelistic messages that he did on Sunday evenings at Westminster Chapel in London. And in that series of messages, at one point, he said, the, he says, here's the difference between the gospel and something that's substituted for it. He says, the gospel is good news, not good advice. It's good news, it's not good advice. And he gave this illustration. He said, let's suppose you have a king and his city's being attacked by another nation or a tribe. And he tells his people in the city, now look, I'm going to take the army out and we're going to fight for you. And if we win, I'm going to send a messenger back to you. And if we lose, I'm going to send a messenger back to you. And so if the king goes out and wins the battle, the messenger comes back and he says, good news, we won. Everything's great. Now, there's nothing, you, you can't do that good news. All you can do is listen to that good news because it's already been done. Now, if he loses the battle, he sends the messenger back and he says, look, I've got some good advice for you. <laughs> Head for the hills. Okay? But, but the gospel is not something that you do. It's something that you tell or that you hear, and it has consequences that you do. But you can't do the gospel. And so when people say, preach the gospel every day, use words if necessary, they simply show that they don't understand the gospel. And it's vital for us to understand the gospel if we're going to go about doing real evangelism. Well, I'm out of time, but let me hasten quickly to my fourth uh, point, and that's simply this. What is it that we want to produce what is it that we want to produce out of the Twin Lakes Fellowship and out of the ordinary means of grace emphasis and out of the kind of ministry commitments that flow from the ordinary means of grace? Well, I used this phrase last year and I'll use it again this year. We want a strong coalition of Bible-saturated, truth-driven, God-entranced, prayer-soaked, aggressively evangelistic, Christ-treasuring and exalting, Spirit-filled, sovereign grace-loving, missions-advancing, hell-robbing, strong-thinking, real-need-exposing, soul-winning, mind-engaging, vagueness-rejecting, wartime lifestyle-pursuing, risk-taking, justice-advancing, mercy-showing, radical-sacrifice-making, scripture-expounding, cross-cherishing, homosexuality-opposing, abortion-denouncing, racism-resisting, heaven-desiring, imputation of an alien righteousness-proclaiming, justification by faith alone apart from doing preaching, error-exposing, complementarian, joyful, humble, loving, courageous, happy pastors working together for the gospel. That's what we want. My... My, um, my apologies to my friend John Piper for the hyper-hyphenated paragraph. I learned it from him. Uh, that's what we're after at the Twin Lakes Fellowship. And I hope that you get something of an encouragement in that direction in the time we have together over the next couple of days. Well, that was Ligon Duncan from the Twin Lakes Fellowship uh, just this last April of 2008. Uh, I hope you were blessed by that. I think uh, he makes a wonderful point there at the end that God's glory is what this is all about. Uh, that's why we're doing this podcast, uh, because we want to see God's uh, glory in his churches. Uh, we don't want to see us just trying to do church uh, we want to see people who've had their hearts changed, who really have a desire to meet with God, and we believe that happens as we come to God through the means that He has ordained. Uh, so I hope this Absolutely. has been encouragement. Yep, I hope this has been encouragement to you. And uh, Matt, uh, what are we going to be doing next time? 
Well, I think the next month we're going to try and pick up uh, with uh, a co-interview or an interview with uh, a Reformed Baptist friend who lives here uh, in the Seattle area, and we're going to try and pick up the conversation that we began uh, in March, uh, talking about um, the the differences between uh, membership views of uh, reform, typical Reformed Baptist and a Presbyterian. And uh, why we uh, can come to their Lord's Supper, but they don't think our baptism is is valid, and hopefully have a, a friendly conversation and, and further that conversation that John Piper has been trying to do out there in uh, in the blogosphere. Okay, well, very good. Uh, we'll see you next time. Until then, uh, this is Sean and Matt signing out. We are. Uh, if you want more information, you want to interact uh, with us on anything that we've talked about, anything Liggs talked about, uh, you can always go to the website ordinarymeans.com or over to the blog ordinarymeans.blogspot.com. Uh, so until next time, may the Lord richly bless you as you pursue Him through His ordinary means. Mm-hmm.